0: Now please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. It will be a couple of weeks before we get back to the pastoral epistles. But uh, every few years I preach this text because I think it's very crucial for the Christian's life. For our understanding of, of the truth. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Almighty God and our Father, we thank you for giving to us this inspired word, and we pray that the Holy Spirit, who has given to us this word by divine inspiration, will also now illumine its meaning to our hearts, and we pray that in fresh ways this truth will be, will be impressed upon our hearts so that we may live for Christ and remember our righteous advocate moment by moment. But Father, there also are undoubtedly those here who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that they will this morning entrust themselves to Jesus Christ through the powerful operations of your Holy Spirit, through whose power we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses, this is the word of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it should be plain from the start that John's ultimate purpose in writing these verses by divine inspiration... Is the full and free forgiveness of the gospel that we may know it, that we may embrace it, understand it, and that it may keep us from sin. He is not writing to excuse sin, but that as we deepen our understanding of the gospel, we will eschew sin, hate sin, and love Christ more. How can we think of what it costs the Son of God to save us from our sins and be casual about sin? However, Even the most godly Christian in this world still has a sinful heart. What do we do when we sin? Well, the Lord has told us in the first chapter in verse 9 what we are to do when we sin. If we, and he's talking to Christians here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's made it plain that we are to see sin the way He sees it. The word confess, homologo, means to say the same thing. We are to say what God says about it. We are to condemn it and to confess it and to trust Him for His faithful forgiveness. How can we walk confidently in that pardon? Well, that's what 1 John 2, 1 and 2 is all about. Now, as we look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2, the first thing that I want us to see Is that forgiven sinners are still sinners. Forgiven sinners are still sinners. Allow me to make it plain that forgiven sinners are completely forgiven and completely pardoned. Let's take a few moments to look at Old Testament passages that reflect upon this truth. In the 103rd Psalm, Psalm 103, We have this beautiful Old Testament language that references our forgiveness. In Psalm 103, beginning at verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Or turning over to the book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, Isaiah 43, verse 25. There we read, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Or in chapter 44 of Isaiah, verse 22, just turning the page I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Or if we turn together to the book of Micah. Micah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, the book of Micah. The seventh chapter, the Lord expresses himself this way to his children. Micah 7, verse 18 and following. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins, all our sins, into the depth of the sea." And if we were to move into the New Testament, we would see passage after passage after passage reflecting this language and passage after passage that teaches that forgiven sinners are justified in God's court of law. Now, that's what we need to remember. Before we see anything else in the text, that forgiven sinners are completely forgiven. That in God's court of law, we are declared, who are believers in Jesus, just. We are justified. We are completely accepted. That when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say, I am declared righteous. That it is an act once for all, not a process. It is unrepeatable. That I am dressed with finality in Christ's righteous robe and none can remove it. I am righteous in the sight of God's law. Nothing need be added. Nothing can be subtracted. I am forgiven, I am justified, I am accepted in God's court of law. Now is there anything more thrilling than that? That we sinners can come into the presence of a holy God and know that we are by faith in Jesus Christ completely forgiven and utterly accepted. But forgiven sinners are still within our hearts sinners. In God's court of law, judicially, we are pardoned, accepted, but in my heart I still sin. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 1 and remember what he says in verses 8 and following. If we say, again he's addressing Christians, if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And as we come to chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. And so he teaches us that forgiven sinners are sinners still. So how do we bring this together? I think the question that I've most been asked in my pastoral ministry is this question. If I am completely accepted, completely forgiven, and completely pardoned through the blood of Jesus Christ, why is it necessary that I continue to confess my sins? How do we bring these things together? Well, I'm forgiven, but I still confess my sins because we must distinguish between two relations... Before coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we were under the condemning wrath of Almighty God. God was our condemning judge. But now, having trusted in the Lord Jesus, we are adopted into his family, and he is no longer a condemning judge, but he is our Heavenly Father. When you first come to Christ by faith, God's wrath and condemnation have been removed by Jesus' blood. The wrath of God, once for all and forever, has been removed. God is no longer toward me a condemning judge, He is my Father. So, why do I continue to confess my sins? Not because of condemning wrath, not because the debt is left unpaid. But because now as a son, not as a criminal in a court of law, but as a son, I sin against my father. In Christ's righteousness, I am perfect. In my heart, I am not where I want to be, and I am not where, by the grace of God, I will be. Justified sinners are still sinners in our hearts, but we do not love it. We do not enjoy it, we do not habituate it, and we do not sin without struggle, which is what Romans 7 is all about. So do you understand, it's crucial that you do, that in God's court of law, if you have believed in Christ alone for your salvation, you are completely judicially righteous. But in my heart, I will not in this life be free from sin. Morally I am still very imperfect and sanctification is growth and process. Judicially I am perfect through the blood of the lamb. Now some of you know that John and Charles Wesley and later Charles Grandison Finney who have influenced the American evangelical scene greatly both taught all taught the doctrine of sinless perfection without going into detail they actually did teach that a Christian could in this life get to the point that he did not morally fail, that he did not sin. Well that's nonsense. There's a story that an old preacher told and I bring it into the pulpit with me this morning. It's about a little girl who had been left by her parents with another family while her parents were away and when at last the preacher says the mother and father returned for her she was on her way home she said to her father, Daddy, there are four little boys at that house where I've been staying. Yes, I knew that, he said. Daddy, they have family worship there every night. I'm glad to hear that, said the father. Daddy, every night their father prays for those four little boys. That's as it should be. He prays, Daddy, he prays that God will make them good boys and that they won't do anything naughty, said the little one. Well, that's very nice. She was silent a moment and then she said, but daddy, he hasn't done it yet. <laughs> and the preacher goes on to say, there are a great many folk like that. We're praying that God will make us good, that God will make us holy, that our lives may be lives of victory, but I'm afraid that many of us have to confess God hasn't done it yet. We recognize the fact that we do sin. Now God is at work in the heart of every Christian. He is sanctifying us. He is growing us even at times that we cannot tell But no Christian can can at any point in this life say, morally, I am where I will be. We will be made perfect in holiness when we die and not before in terms of our hearts, in terms of our affections, morally speaking. So that's the first thing that we need to understand. And it's crucial that forgiven sinners are still sinners. In Christ, judicially, completely accepted. In our hearts, still sinners. The second thing we want to see as we look at the text is that justified sinners do not lose our Savior when we sin. So we read in verse 1 of 1 John 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate, a present tense He is qualified to plead our case, to stand for us. He is in the Father's presence for us. And so, Christian, you sinned. And you know within your heart that it's an awful thing. It is. I'm not going to minimize it. The Bible would never minimize it. It's an awful thing when I sin. There's still indwelling sin. But when you sinned, you did not lose your advocate. Sin is awful. But you did not lose Jesus Christ. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death I stake my whole eternity. You have staked your entire eternity upon another's life, another's death. And that is the life and death of Jesus Christ. He died for you. He intercedes for you. And the link between you can never be severed. Well, my sin is great. Your advocate is greater. Well, my sin is great. The blood of the Lamb is greater. And you and I have no right to say, well, my case is peculiar. Other Christians don't lose their advocates, but my sin is so great that I lose mine. No, no. Your justification lasts. And for our continuing moral struggle, His blood pleads for us. Which leads us to see a third thing in this text. God's provision for saints who are still sinners. God's provision for saints who are still sinners. Now I think there are two images that are reflected in the text. The first is the image of the courtroom. Look again at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a Paracleton, a Paraclete, which means a lawyer, which means an advocate, which means one who pleads another's case. And very literally, it could be translated that he is face to face with the Father. It's the same expression we have in John one one: "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, or face to face with God." The same thing here: He is face to face. With the Father, literally toward the Father. In the Father's presence for you, believer, is your righteous advocate. The Father in love provided the one who averted God's wrath, and he is now our advocate. And notice in the text that it says, We have an advocate with the Father. And never has a simple present tense meant more. This means that the once-for-all, finished, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you continues to avail for you now and forever because your advocate pleads your case in heaven. You, believer, will never be dragged into court again. So we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. One cross, one savior, one intercessor and you need no other But there's another image that is found here, and it's the image of the temple and the temple worship. And we find it here in this word propitiation. It's here in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Apostle Paul, of course, uses that expression in Romans 3.25, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith." And so, Christian, your case is in the hands of the one who satisfied divine wrath. That's what propitiation means. He has satisfied completely, he has quenched utterly with his shed blood the wrath of God. And of course, the backdrop to this is all the way back in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, upon which Hebrews chapters 9 through 10 comment. Do you remember what you find in those chapters? Jesus Christ, according to those chapters, passes through the heavenly court into the holy of holies. Where God is present, not once per year, as did the high priest, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Not for his own sins, for he has no sin, but for others, Hebrews tells us. A spotless sacrifice, offered himself once for all at the end of the ages, and now he is seated at God's right hand where his blood continues to purify our hearts. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He seems to say to the great father, in the day when the sinner stands arraigned, Yes, my father, that sinner was unrighteous, but remember that I was accepted as his substitute. I stood to keep the law for him and gave my act of obedience. I went up to the cross and bled and so gave my passive obedience. I have covered him from head to foot with my doing and my dying. I have so arrayed him that not even the angels are adorned as he. For though they may be clothed with the perfect righteousness of a creature, I have given them the righteousness of God himself. I am become unto my people the Lord, their righteousness. See, I have taken the jewels out of my crown to bedeck them, the garments from my own back to cover them, and the blood from my own veins to make the dye in which I have dipped their garments till they are purpled with imperial glory. What can there be asked more for the sinner than this? Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands up to plead for me and pleads his righteousness. And Mark, he does not say, if I do not sin, but if I do sin. There is the beauty of the text. It does not say, if any man do not sin, we have an advocate. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. So that when I have sinned and come creeping up to my closet with a guilty conscience and an aching heart and feel that I am not worthy to be called God's son, I have still an advocate because I am one of the many men that sin. I sin and I have an advocate. Oh, I know not how to express the joy I feel in my soul to be able to put it so. It is not if any man be righteous, we have an advocate. It is not if any man be prayerful and careful and godly and walk scripturally and in the light and so on. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. Oh, my soul, there is music of God's heart in those words. Music such as the prodigal heard at the festival when he re- Returned and was welcomed. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ, then, people of God, by his advocacy, presents for you the merit of his blood, answers every indictment, and stands for our acquittal because the law of God is satisfied. And when we read in 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and it says that God is faithful and just. He is faithful and just and can remain faithful and just because we have Jesus Christ the righteous advocate who stands for us. And Jesus fulfills in fact what the high priest fulfilled only in symbol in the Old Testament. Well, what does this mean for you? And what does this mean for me? Man, it means a lot. It means so much I can't say it all this morning. But it means this first. It means, and this is the fourth thing, what does it mean for you and for me? It means that sin should be more and more ugly to me as I reflect upon these truths. Isn't that right? The deeper my knowledge of the gospel, the more I feel his mercy, the more I recognize God's goodness to me in Christ, the more my gaze is fixed on the Lamb of God that has taken away my sin, the more detestable sin is should be to me. I don't say I have an advocate with the Father, therefore I'm going to go live a life of sin. I say he died for me and is my advocate when I sin, but oh, I don't want to sin. Thomas Watson the Puritan put it this way, the sight of Caesar's bloody robe incensed the Romans against them that slew him. The sight of Christ's bleeding body should incense us against sin. Let us not parley with it, let us... Not parley with it, let that not be our joy. Listen to this, let that not be our joy which made Christ a man of sorrow. Old John Brown of Edinburgh, one of our forefathers, says the value of the blood of Christ is the measure of the demerit of sin. The value of the blood of Christ is the measure of Of the demerit of sin. And so this text does not function to give us flippant views of sin and of sinning. I write these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and who of us can say that we do not daily, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It means that I hate sin, but also, it means, and this is the next point of application, awful though sin is when I do fail, the door of mercy is not shut. Now I'm speaking to someone now, and this ought to mean a lot to you. I'm speaking to someone, some ones out there, this morning and you know that you are not following Christ as you should you know that you are clinging to sin you know that there are idols of the heart you know that you have broken God's law you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not walking faithfully as a son or daughter of the living God you need to hear this let's always come back to first principles folks and these are first principles these are basic Go back to bedrock. Immerse your conscience in Jesus' blood. Trust in His sacrifice. Depend upon His advocacy. Believe, repent, confess, knowing that you have an advocate with the Father. That He is the Savior of sinners, not the sinless. And go to Him. Go to Him as your advocate. Return turn back to apply this truth even more pointedly the truth of Christ's righteous advocacy was not only true for those addressed by John directly but for believers here and now or wherever whenever they may be found and that I am convinced is the reason that he adds in verse 2 He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I certainly cannot this morning unpack this. It does not mean universal redemption because that would remove the comfort of the text. It would mean that he intercedes for those who will be lost. It would mean that our advocate loses cases. No, our advocate never loses a case. The righteous advocate has never lost a case. But it does mean these words for our sins and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. It does mean not only you to whom I write, but to the redeemed of every place, every people every period for whom Christ propitiated the wrath of God it means for you the Jew it means for you the Gentile it means for you no matter who you may be no matter what your background or how great your sin this great lawyer is for you all and he has never lost a case he is for you believer not against you He is your righteous advocate in heaven, believer. And he presents the merit of his blood. And he answers every indictment. And Christ's sacrifice calls for acquittal because the law is satisfied. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let's get this straight. I weep because of my sin. I hate it. I don't want it in my life. I weep because as a son I sin. But I do not weep for fear that I will be condemned for my sins. Because that sin judicially is no longer mine It was imputed to my Savior on the cross my righteous substitute who bore it in my place and in my stead so that marvel of marvels, he was counted sin in the sight of God for me and for you, believer. And that's good news. As R.S. Candlish says in his old commentary, no sin, no sinner. Listen to this. No sin, no sinner is beyond the reach of the great atonement. It meets the case of all mankind, of all the world, and therefore it meets your case. Be your backsliding ever so grievous, your guilt ever so aggravated. It meets your case. Now this text... My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This text is written to believers in Jesus Christ. But may I speak to you, my unbelieving friend, you who have yet to put your trust in Jesus Can't you see how this invites you to the Savior who can pardon, who can forgive, and who can be your advocate also in heaven? My lost friend, not yet a Christian, bear with me for a moment. In the gospel call, there is no sinner that is barred from the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. No sinner. Christ's shed blood is sufficient for any sinner. His blood is of infinite value, which means that no matter how great your sins have been, He can wipe the slate clean. He can pardon you in God's court of law. It is a finished work. You add nothing to it. You can't work it up. You can't work your way into a savable state. He has done it all. And perhaps you are overwhelmed with a desire to come to Jesus Christ. And even now you want to confess your sins to God and you want to be done with that load of guilt. Perhaps as you were on your bed at night, your heart has been beating and essentially it speaks to you and it says, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. But you would like for your heart to beat. I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. You want that. You desire that. You do not want to stand before Him on the day of judgment, naked and hopeless. You know that you cannot establish your own righteousness. You know that you need a substitute in your place who bore your sin. You want to be reconciled to God. Where, where do such thoughts and feelings and desires come from? They don't come from us by nature because the Bible says by nature we hate God. We don't want Him. If you find your heart desiring Christ this morning, it is because God, the Holy Spirit, is at work. These thoughts and feelings can come only from the Holy Spirit. They come from the throne of the all-conquering Savior who draws sinners to Himself. In other words, in order for us sinners to want to come to Christ, it is because God acts to change our sinful dispositions, and this is the best of news, otherwise we would be hopeless forever. So the word is this. This same Savior who has saved others around you has declared us righteous through His blood forever, who has pardoned us as an act in God's court of law. This same Savior is the Christian's advocate whose blood will plead for us until He takes us all the way home this is the same God who is working within the Christian's heart to sanctify our souls and to help us to love Christ more. This is the same Savior who can save you from your sin. So that if you sit here this morning under the condemnation and wrath of Almighty God, you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise is full and free. When you trust Christ... That moment from Jesus, a pardon you receive. Praise the Lord. Come and welcome. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.